All right, we are still in a series. We're going to be a long series for a while in Romans. We're in chapter 3, and I want to say if you are a guest this morning, thank you for coming to our church. I don't know how much you know about the book of Romans, but Romans is a very technical, it's a very complicated book. It is, it is arguably the most theologically dense. It has so much information in it that the Apostle Paul wrote, and he's explaining to this church in Rome, this was a very important church because of its location in Rome, the kind of city that Rome was. It was a port city that people would come in and out of this city. So they wanted to make sure that people understood what it meant to really believe in Jesus Christ. And, and there was a lot of information that comes out of that. And sometimes even for for people who know the Bible, it can be somewhat confusing, but, but we do books like this for a couple of reasons. One, it's still the Word of God, and so we try to read complicated things because God wanted this in His Word. He wanted us to understand what it means and all of the implications of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But when he instructs men like Paul to write these letters, there are a lot of problems that people are having. And so each of the letters are trying to address many problems that the people who were there who were alive when the letter was written, they're trying to address the issues that they're experiencing so that they understand how to honor the Lord. And so we read this some 2,000 years later and it creates some problems for us because we don't always relate to the culture that is in the Bible. Just like if you are here from China, America is a different culture. And so you may not relate easily to things that come naturally to us because this is not the culture that you're from. Well, this is how it is when we're trying to understand what the Bible says to us, because we believe it's God's word, it is the primary source that we get to help us know how to be a Christian until the day that we die, whether it be by some other aspect or by was out front. So I actually haven't. Has anybody been stung by a wasp before? Raise your hand if you have been. Can you come give a testimony about how to look? Does it hurt? Did it hurt when you got stung? Yeah. yeah. It, it hurts? It's the worst? I can think of some things worse than that, but I feel you, though. Where did you get stung? At a bus stop? And where did where, where it sting you? On your head, back, and your neck? And you didn't, even, you didn't even see it coming? You were just sitting there, ah! It was like that? You screamed? How many screamed when they got stung by the wasp? Wow. I appreciate the guys who were being honest. Darren was like, hey, man, look, man, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> wow. Well, further testimony as to why you should take serious the wasp. All right, so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at 11 verses. I'm going to break these down in sort of sections uh, because Paul is, there's a, there's a main strategy that, that he's trying to do at this point in the letter. Paul's main strategy is to prove to everyone that they are sinful and worthy of God's wrath, which is the bad news. And then he wants to show how people have faith in Jesus Christ, which is the good news. And that's what he's doing. Our passage today is the bad news. It's not the good news. The good news begins next week. Today, these 11 verses cover bad news. Now, Paul's going to deliver the bad news in a way that we don't see him use very often. There's a very unique way that Paul is going to deliver the bad news. So here's what he's doing at this point in the book, in Romans 3. We're coming off of accusations against people who are not Jewish, who did not hear from God directly on how to live. And those would be people in Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. So he's coming off accusations against them saying that they're sinful and deserve God's wrath because of their actions. And then he accuses the people, the Jewish people, who have heard God's word, who understand how to live, 
but they refuse to do it the way God has commanded it. So he accuses them in chapter two. So now we're in chapter three, the second portion of it. And he's proving here that everyone has disobeyed God. No one is exempt. No one will stand before God and say, but I didn't. It's not going to happen. And so he makes this very plain in verse 9. He says this in Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. Speaking of himself as someone Jewish, he says, are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. So he asks these hypothetical questions. What then? Are we any better off? He's asking them as if someone else that's reading the letter is asking those questions. And then he says, not at all, for we are all under sin. Now, this is consistent with what he said in Romans 2, verse 12, when he said this, all who sin without the law will also perish without the law. So those who don't know God's word are still going to perish. They're going to be destroyed. And all who sin under the law, meaning people who know how to live and are responsible to live a certain way, they're going to be judged by that law. So this is consistent with what he is saying. But there's something different here. Look at the language here, what he says in in verse 9. He says, what then, are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. Now, we read past this very quickly and we keep moving, but here's the question. Who is the we that Paul's talking about? Who is the we? He said, for we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. Well, who is the we? If you trace back to Romans 1, Paul has been speaking in the first person. He's been speaking about himself. Romans 1.11 says, for I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now, in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the Gentiles. I am obligated to both Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the good. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of salvation for everyone who believes, first to the Jew and to the Gentile. So who is the we that Paul is saying, for we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin? Who is the we? Up to this point, Paul has done most of the talking. He's done most of the talking, minus a few references to some scripture. Paul has done most of the explanation from his words. But now he says, we have charged. We. Now, they do, he does use the word we one time, I think in Romans 1, 5, when he says, for we have been given the charge to preach the gospel. So it could be talking about the other apostles that, that like him, are sent to preach the gospel. And that you could say that. Well, I do not think that's the we that Paul's talking about. I think the we is more significant because Paul's next strategy is to do something that we haven't seen him really do before in this letter. And to the degree in which he does it in this letter, we don't see him do this again in the majority of his other letters. And I think this explains who the we is. The we comes into play beginning in verse 10. And this is a very important thing that Paul is doing. Paul would have called this, in his day, they would have called this pearl stringing. We would probably call this topical. But here's what Paul does in this section that he doesn't do as often, and at least not to this degree. In Romans 3, 10 through 18, there's a significant quotation. Now we read Romans 10 through 3, 10 through 18, and it reads very smoothly. 
It reads like he just took a passage from the Old Testament, inserted it into his writing, and then he just explained it. But that's not what Paul did. What he did was to make sure that everyone understands that everyone is worthy of God's punishment outside of Jesus Christ. Paul does not go to one particular passage. He goes to eight of them and puts them all together and makes them one cohesive thought, proving that from God's perspective, this is his perspective on all of us. And he does it like this. Romans 3, 10 through 12, come from Psalms 14, 1 through 3, and also Ecclesiastes 7, 20. The first half of Romans 3, 13 is from Psalm 5, verse 9. The second half of Romans 3, 13 is from Psalm 140, verse 3. Romans 3, 14 is from Psalms 10. Verse 7. Romans 3, 15 through 17 is from Isaiah 59, verses 7 through 8. Why does he do this? Or better, why is this important? This is important because Paul is using scripture that was at this time over a thousand years ago to show them that one, it's relevant in their day. It's relevant in their day. It's authoritative, it's timeless, and it's final, but it's also necessary. Paul is saying the word of God, which we consider the Old Testament, is so relevant and so necessary and so cohesive that I can pull from different parts of different books and make a cohesive evaluation of every single person who has ever been born. Now, why does this matter to us? Well, we often see and evaluate people much differently than Paul does. You see, he cannot diagnose humanity without using the Bible. Why is this important to us? Because we are tempted to evaluate people based on everything but the scriptures. We're tempted to evaluate people based on how they feel about themselves. We're tempted to evaluate culture and humanity based on how we feel. We're tempted to evaluate humanity and culture based on what we see happening in the culture, circumstantially. The cultural, philosophical explanations of the day are always trying to get people who know God's word to set aside God's word and choose a different lens in which you evaluate humanity. And why this is important is it affects the way we tell people what we believe to be true. Because now we don't evaluate them based on God's standards. We evaluate them based on their standards. And people who do not honor the Lord and have no desire to the Lord all of a sudden seem like good people. And they can be nice people. Let's not be, I'm not saying people who don't believe in Jesus are all mean people. They're people who believe in Jesus that are mean. <laughs> exactly. Some are in this room. Don't try to look around. Be thinking about somebody else. Don't look around and be like, man, don't think about your spouse right now, your sibling. Don't think about your best friend. Pull your, pull your cell phone out and don't put nothing on the screen. And what's the reflection you see? Black mirror. We are tempted to evaluate humanity and the culture around us based on everything but the Bible. And so here Paul is coming to a culture that's very much like the one we live in now. Less technology, same distraction. Less, less obvious worship of other gods. Their gods had statues and temples. Ours have on and off buttons. It's the same culture of distraction, 
but it's less than it's technology. Paul's looking at this diverse, amazing city with people worshiping and believing anything they want. And he says, in order for me to accurately evaluate you, to help you understand the problem, the bad news, before I get to the good news, you must understand that whether you were a Jewish person who heard the law of God or not, you are in trouble. You are in trouble. And I'm going to prove it to you by the most authoritative source. God's word. And I'm not going to take one passage so you can just say, well, that's just what Isaiah says. He might have had a bad day that day when he wrote that passage. Let me take a little bit of God's word from all over the place so that you see at least two strong things, two main things you're going to see in verses 10 through 18. Verses 10 through 12, you're going to see the true identity of humanity from God's perspective. Verses 10 through 12, we're going to look at the true identity of God's humanity. Verses 13 through 18, the true obedience of humanity. And then 19 and 20 will be sort of the reiteration of what he stated with a slight adjustment in verses 19 and 20. Again, believer, this is important because despite how challenging it is to be a Christian, we must evaluate ourselves, culture, and even God through Scripture. Recently in a, I was struck by, and this is a, she put this in an email out, so um, in, in praying for one of our sisters who's having some, some, um, some, some back problems, she said this in the email, and I was moved by this to pray for her even more so. I'm paraphrasing, but she said, I asked for prayer, one, for the pain, but two, because her view of God in suffering has been challenged. In other words, I, I thought God would maybe change the way I feel. And I'm, she didn't, I'm, I'm saying, I'm paraphrasing, I'm saying what I think she made me. I'm not trying to put words in her mouth, but, but, but that's how I took that. And I thought, wow, that's a very insightful prayer request, but that's also the challenge. You see, what she's fighting against is, I am tempted to evaluate God by my standards only, by the way my back feels, by the way my circumstances are. I'm tempted to evaluate God in that way, and I need to evaluate God based on who he says he is in his word. So what Paul is doing, even though he's using passages from the Old Testament, it is very relevant for us because most of us, if we're honest, evaluate God by everything except his word. And this is why we don't trust them. This is why we're not, we don't have a strong relationship with them when we don't want to. This is why it's easy not to read or to pray. Because according to my evaluation, God is not doing the thing that I thought he was going to do from everything to giving me a spouse to healing my back. And now here we are needing to be reminded from even an obscure passage like Romans 3. And I say obscure not because it is, but because it's not our cultural connection. That in verses 10 through 18, he's going to use a bunch of passages to explain the true identity of humanity and the true obedience of humanity. And by doing it this way, he's helping us remember that the way we evaluate Everything is by the word of God. And our temptation to, do, to not do so may be one of the strongest things we face. It may be the biggest temptation. 
with distraction being the second. So look at verse 10 through 12. The true identity of humanity. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Now remember, today is the bad news. There's good news too. That begins next Sunday. <laughs> but today, I, I, God structured the letter the way he did. So if y'all have issues, make sure y'all take it up with the Lord. He structured the letter this way. I'm just breaking it down in a way that would be helpful for us. There is no one who does good. These are powerful words coming from God through Paul, first to the church in Rome and to this church in Riverdale. These are powerful words. And they could be even confusing. Because we don't argue with that. But then we read stuff. We know that, that Scripture said stuff like in Genesis 6, 9, 6, 8, that, God found, that Noah found favor with the Lord. Or, or we know that in, in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was credited as righteousness. These are human beings. Remember 1 Samuel 13, 14, where God, through the prophet, tells Saul, the then king, that you are going to be removed from the kingship and replaced by a man who's after my own heart, man after my own heart. He calls David that. The next king, David, God says, God says that. You only see that a couple times in the scriptures when God actually testifies to the person's character. You don't see that all the time. When God says, hey, have you tried him? He's solid. Two things, be encouraged and be very afraid. Be encouraged and be very afraid. David is a man after God's own heart. So how does that then jive with the fact that there is no one who does good, not even one. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. How do we process these words taken from God's word when we know that other passages seem to indicate that these are good guys? Well, let's zoom in a little bit more and see what he's saying. Verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. What is God saying here? He's saying no one obeys himself. No one obeys God perfectly. No one does. No one does. I said in this message last week, and I stand by this statement, that the standard for righteousness that God has given us is far beneath him. It's far beneath God. God has accepted that humanity, first of all, we're created by him. He's the creator. We're created by him. The standards that even in the natural world, right, the standards you set for your children are beneath you. Case in point, my son's, 10, 15 p.m. Yeah, my son stay up late in the summer. That's because of their dad. Their mom would have them in bed by 8 p.m. <laughs> my son stay up late. My, middle, my youngest son, Mateo, I call him Buckets. He'll come in and be like, Poppy, um, can I have a snack? And he makes his face. <laughs> can I have a snack? It's kind of like, please don't say no. I know it's late, Poppy, but can I have a snack? And I'll just look at him and be like, Buggins is 10-15, son. Did you have a snack already? And he'll say, always, it's always the same answer. Yeah. <laughs> it's never no with Buggins. Yeah. And I'll be like, nah, son, it's too late. It's late. No snack, no juice. You're going to bed soon. Can't have that. It's not, it's not good for you. And then 15 minutes later, I'm getting a snack. It's not good for me either. But those are my rules for him. Those are my rules for him. 
Righteousness from God's perspective is way different than what he allows us to pursue. So when he says there's no one righteous, he's not talking about from the standards in which we pursue him. He's talking about from the standards in which his character is. There's no one righteous, not even one. No one obeys God perfectly. No one does. He says there is no one who understands. In verse 11, there's no one who seeks God. No one understands. Well, isn't the Psalms, isn't the Psalms a bunch of songs and poetry that highlights David is seeking God? What is he saying? There's no one who understands. Well, there's no human being that understands the mind of God. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 11 through 14. There's no one who understands the mind of God except the spirit of God. So when he says there's no one who understands, there's no one who understands the mind of God or how he works or how he's even comprised. How is God? Three in person, one in essence. How does God ordain things to happen for us, but then evaluate us and judge us based upon what we did, even though he knows everything that we're going to do and put things in motion in our lives anyway. How do we do that? How does he do that? What was going on in heaven when Jesus was down here? If Jesus is fully God, like how did that work that he was in a human body and he didn't allow himself to be fully God, so he didn't allow himself to know everything, there were things that Jesus didn't know. I think it's clear when, when, when the scriptures say stuff like Jesus marveled at their lack of faith when he did miracles. I think because Jesus, to be a fully human being, allowed himself to not know how people are going to respond when he does something like heal a man born blind. I mean, we get impressed at car tricks. You ever see someone do a magic trick and you're like, hey, do it again. Let me see, do that again. You're just impressed. Jesus is healing people born blind, casting out demons. People are getting healed just by touching his clothes. And so there were times when he didn't allow himself to know how people would respond. And when he would see that they didn't, still didn't believe him, it said he marveled. He was shocked. Like, wow. Even with his disciples, he would say, are you all still so dumb? Like, after the five loaves and the two fish? You think I'm going to let you die on a boat? Like, you don't think I have enough control over the weather? I just fed 12,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Talk about all you can eat. Like, that's, that's, he's saying, I'm capable of doing that. You still don't understand? What was going on there? We don't understand that. No one understands God. We don't understand how he works. There is no one who seeks God. Not aimlessly with nothing but his glory in mind. Not that way. Only Jesus did. What did Jesus say when he was on earth? I only do what I see the Father doing. Can David say that? No one can say that. I only do what I see the Father doing. When he says, all have turned away, all have turned away. If we, if we go through the men that I've named and others in the scriptures that I did name, we'd find examples of them at some point turning away from the will of God to do their own will. There's not one person who hasn't. Not one person. Name them. Now, there might not be enough literature of this individual to prove it. Some people, you just have a brief couple sentences about them, and it seemed like they didn't sin at all. We don't know much about Mary, Jesus' mom. Just the initial section. We don't even hear about his dad. That wasn't what God wanted us to know a lot about that, that, that dynamic. But all have turned away. 
There is no one who hasn't done that except Jesus. And he says, all alike have become worthless. No one does good. Now we think like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. People do good stuff. But if the standard is perfection, then this is a valid statement. Last weekend, some of us were there, and I had the privilege of photographing a wedding. And one of the things that I love about weddings, especially from the photography standpoint, is you have to pose people a lot. And one of the things that you have to do, it's usually one of the bridesmaids, I think in this case it was the bride's sister and LaShawn as well, were trying to move the dress. And the, one, one of the things that you're trying to do when move the dress is make sure that it doesn't get dirty. Why? Because you don't want to get as best as possible one spot on this beautiful white dress. Because if you get one spot on that dress, just one spot on this whole white dress, it ruins the whole thing. Can you imagine? I'm sure this has happened. In a pinch, a bride just took a bite of a jelly donut. <laughs> and you know where I'm going with this. Bloop. <gasps> and a big old stain right here when you say I do. And the dude can't, the dude can't stop looking at the donuts thing. <laughs> but can you imagine that bride feels horrible? Why? Because she ruined the dress. Just one stain. It's still a beautiful dress. But all of us, if we saw that, you know what we remember about that dress? The stain. One sin is one stain. And it's ruined. It's ruined. Now imagine of all the sins that we've committed. That dress is no longer white. It's black. Just no one does good. From God's perspective, this is the true identity of humanity. And he's been building up to this point, using God's word to evaluate culture and humanity. And by doing this, we are learning a valuable and a necessary technique that we must evaluate culture, ourselves, God, by the word of God. Once we move away, then we are defining good and evil on our own. I'm not saying people aren't nice. I'm not saying we don't like them. I'm just saying, apart from God, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, that's just the reality. That's the reality. The true identity of humanity. He moves on to the true obedience of humanity. Beginning in verse 13, 13 through 18 is the true obedience of humanity. He says this, their throat is an open grave. Next week it will be the good news, I promise. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. In the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And we read this and we think, wow. That's kind of harsh. But if we were honest, if we were honest, many of us can view people in certain countries this way. If we're honest, we can view people in third world countries very similar to this. In very negative ways. Violent, wretched, no peace. We can do that. I mean, that would be an evaluation that we would say, even in our own country, in certain parts of it and in certain situations. We would say that. We could legitimately say, wow, this is true. Hopefully not of our church. But in the country, or we would have had that evaluation of other countries. Whether we're wrong or right is not the point. It's that we can think that way very easily. So now imagine if you're God, from God's perspective, looking at the, everything. 
I mean, right now, I've said this before, and this always, I think about this often, and it just puzzles me. Right now, at 11.29 our time, right now, in the world, right now, someone is being raped, someone is being murdered, a bank is being robbed, someone's committing adultery, someone's lying to someone, someone's stealing from someone, someone is planning someone's murder, someone is hurting a child. Any sin you can name is happening every second of every day. We don't always see it. By God's grace, we're not always doing it. But it's happening. It's happening. All the time. And it's amazing that God allows people to live as long as we live. It's amazing. His grace is amazing that people live as long as they live. And many of them will reject him until they die. I forgot there was a, a, a great, was it Christopher Hitchens one who died? Great theologian? Great, not theologian. Uh, 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 atheist. It's a great theologian. He was a meologian. He was a great meologian. But he gained popularity by going back and forth with different theologians and, and through books he wrote and he had this, this, this critique of God as misogynistic and all this stuff and it became sort of his, his almost like what he would have on his tombstone. And I remember when he got sick and was diagnosed, I think it was cancer, if I'm not mistaken, and he was going to die, I remember him saying this. It was, I'm paraphrasing, but this is what he said right before he was going to die. I mean, he was moments from death, not like years, but like it's clear, like you're not going to make it past. And he said, I think he said, many Christians have foolishly thought that death, that the fear of, that the, the thrust of death would change my view of God. And he said, they are gravely mistaken. And then he died and realized he was gravely mistaken. Even on his deathbed, you know how many people would love the chance to believe in God before they die? I mean, there are people who are young, even in this room, who just aren't tripping. They think, like, man, when I get older, I'll believe it, as if that's a guarantee. All, there's plenty of people who would love thief on the cross conversions. Mm-hmm. Let me party to the last minute and then let God extend that grace. Well, it does not always work like that. The thief on the cross was not the normal way people get saved. It was showing how gracious God is, not how we should live. People live terrible. And so the obedience of humanity is very much this. The emphasis in verses 13 through 15 is different than the emphasis in 16 through 18. The emphasis in 13 through 15 is on what we say. What we say. Look at this. Verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. 13 and 14 highlight what people say. I believe it was Jesus who taught in Matthew 15 that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So here's what Jesus said. If you really want to know, if you really want to know if you're mature or not or what you really believe, and what do you say? How do you communicate? What do you talk about? Because Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Because of that, when people say, I didn't mean to say that, I think, no, you know, you did mean to say that. I just think you didn't mean for me to hear it or you didn't mean for me to be offended by it, but you meant to say it. <laughs> that was in the heart. Me and my wife get into conflict and we say stuff and I'm just like, wow. I don't think like, oh, I didn't mean to say that. I think, wow, that was in my heart. Well, that's how you really feel. You know, like, tell us how you really feel. The emphasis is on what we say in verses 13 and 14. That's why you get these phrases like in Ephesians 4, let your speech be seasoned with salt. And the emphasis in James on taming the tongue. You know why? Because speech is one of the clearest ways that we are made in the image of God. See, I believe this passage subtly is pointing back to the garden in Genesis 3. 
You see, speech is one of the clearest ways we're made in the image of God. Other animals don't speak. They can communicate and make sounds with each other. But they don't. They can even understand speech. Some pets can understand what you say, right? But you're not going to have your dog be like, hey, man, I'm kind of hungry, man. You mind if you make me? (laughs) If that were to happen, two things would happen. Maybe more than two, but these would be one of the first two that would happen if that happened. One, you would drop dead right there and be with the Lord. Or two, you would leave and have that animal put down. That's what you say now until the animal spoke to you. If your cat says, oh, I'm not feeling that well today, you, that would be different. Animal lovers would think Peter would resign as an organization. They would shut down. Speech is one of the clearest ways we're made in the image of God. Here's proof. Here's proof. In Genesis, right, think about who God is. He does all this creation. Why does it constantly say, and God said, let there be light? Why couldn't he just be like, son, God doesn't have to say anything. He's God. If he just thinks it, boom, it happens. But it says, and God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be. And all of the creation is about what God has said. What makes us uniquely different from the rest of creation is that we can say things like God. So when God brings all the animals to uh, uh, Adam, he names them. He says what their name is. When he sees Eve, he sings. The Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. What does God do? He confuses their speech, changes their language. Because they had one voice and of one mind and were powerful. And God said, there's no stopping them if I do. So he could have done anything to confuse people. But what he does is he changes their ability to understand each other fully so that people branch off with the language of people that they can understand. Because speech is important. What we say is important. Jesus is called the word of God. And we are given the responsibility to speak the message of salvation. Speech is significant in the Bible. This is why Matthew 12, 36 says, everyone will be judged for every careless word we have spoken. By your words, you will be condemned By your words, you will be acquitted. So verses 13 and 14 are highlighting something significant. It's as if God is saying in these passages, look how far the image of God has moved itself from me. That one of the greatest ways that they display being like me has been corrupted. Their throat is an open grave. In other words, they don't speak anything but death. But here's where it shifts back to Genesis 3 for me. Listen to what he says here in 13. He says, viper's venom is under their lips. After he highlights, they deceive with their tongues. That's very, very intentional language. Viper's venom is under their lips. They deceive. Whose image is that described? That language is intentional. Viper's venom. You could have taken that out and still made the point. But they're connecting it back to the serpent, back to the snake, because mankind, apart from Jesus Christ, has the image of the enemy. And so even the way we communicate is nothing but vile, vindictive And we know this to be true today. Our social media experience proves this. Even among believers, sadly, we'll tear each other down. I watch people make Facebook videos and YouTube videos mocking other believers and wanting other believers to support their mockery of other believers. God is so pleased. Well done, fam. 
And I hope you know I'm joking. Now, I'm not saying that Satan was a viper as the kind of snake, but the idea is that humanity has like a venom. It's like a venom. Cursing and bitterness. These are all the, the attributes of the enemy, of God's mortal enemy. And he's describing humanity this way. This is who you are apart from Jesus Christ, from God's perspective. So if out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, if we already have that, that perspective, that satanic speech perspective, that, that vileness, that, that, that venom and all of that, that, that our throats are open graves, we just speak death, then it makes sense that our actions would be different. Our actions would go along. Look at verse 15. It makes sense that our actions would follow. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Why not? If your mouth does it, why wouldn't your lips do it, your body do it? They're swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. And this final verse sums it up perfectly. In verse 18 of this, path, of this section, it says this, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the main issue. It goes back to Romans 1. They worship the created things and not the creator. There's no fear of God. Does your speech and your actions reveal that there's a fear of God in your life? Do your speech and your actions reveal that? I'm not saying in every situation, but would you say that that's the thrust of your life, that your speech and your actions reveal this. It's rhetorical right now, but it's actual at home. Process that. It'll serve you to do so. It's been very, very challenging very good for me to do this. Paul is taking his time exposing to the church in Rome and the bad news. He knows good news is coming, but he needs to make sure they understand the bad news because he's evaluating them from God's perspective. See, when you don't evaluate from God's perspective, here's how you tell people the gospel. You start with the good news and it's only the good news. So you tell people stuff like God loves you. And that's kind of misleading. You start with the good news, God loves you, because that's how you're evaluating them. And you want them to feel, and you're, you're worried about how they're going to feel. You're worried about their self-esteem and everything, so you start with the good news. But Jesus doesn't start with the good news. He starts with the bad news. First words out of his mouth after he came out of the wilderness was, repent. In fact, you won't find a passage where God, Jesus says, or even, even the other authors, find me one and make sure it's a credible translation where it says, God loves you, so believe in him. As an evangelistic message, find me that in the scripture. You won't. It's a, it's a theological reality that God loves, but it's not a, an evangelistic strategy. When you don't evaluate people from God's word, the bad news gets left out. So you get people thinking that, oh, God loves me. I'm good. And then when you try to bring them to bad news, they say, well, only God can judge me. It's like, and I, I, I've had two responses to that over the years. You're right, and he will judge you. Or I say, bruh, it'd be better for me to judge you than God, believe me. you do not evaluate from God's perspective, you will change the essential message that people need for God to change their, his evaluation of them. He's taking his time to expose the bad news so he can get to the good news. So he concludes some of the bad news in verses 19 and 20 with this. I'm going to say this briefly. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law. This is sort of the reiteration. This is reiterating what he said. Those who were under the law we know that the law says it speaks to those who are subject to the law, which means subject to the law just means you're responsible to obey the law because you know what it is. 
Like, if I don't tell my kids, hey, don't do that, then they don't know to do that. Once I say, no, son, you can't have a snack right now. Now he's responsible. He's subject to that statement. If you get a snack, then you, you went against the grain. Snack and whack rhyme together. It speaks to those who were subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut up, may be shut, and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. So he's reiterating what he said. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. This is what he's saying. Look, the law, the Ten Commandments and all the stuff, it didn't, it doesn't save you. It just shows you why you deserve to go to hell, but it doesn't keep you from it. It just explains this is wrong and you do it. And you're under God's judgment because you do it. But it can't take you to heaven. It just shows you why you could deserve to go to hell. It explains what sin is, but it doesn't take away the desire to do it. So he's just saying no one will be justified. No one will stand before God and be like, yes, I get to go to heaven. I deserve to go to heaven because I did this, 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 and this. The only answer for why do you deserve to go to heaven, if God even asked that question, only, the only time, only, the only answer is not even verbal. Just look for wherever Jesus is and point at him. Say him. And hopefully he says, I know him. I know her. So what are we supposed to do with this? This is complicated stuff. How do you apply this? Listen, Scripture says this. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete in every good work. In 2 Timothy 3, it also says this in Romans later on, 15. says this. For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the Scriptures. Listen. We did a six-month series that was very practical, Christianity 2.0. We covered all these topics. We can't always teach that every week. Our goal is that you leave here every week with a, a new thing to stop doing or start doing. Sometimes the application is wow. Sometimes it's cultivating being in awe of God. Often there will be a let me stop doing this and start doing this. For many of us, it's I need to change the way I evaluate everything, culture, myself, God. I need to reorient and evaluate by his word. But we can't handle all the practical stuff. When someone comes to me and says, yeah, I just find it hard to apply the stuff that we're going through right now in Rome. It's cool. Then apply all the stuff that you've learned so far. How's that going for you? It's still hard. It's always going to be hard, right? This isn't about every Sunday. You got to figure out this is, there are going to be things, there are going to be Sundays where you feel like, okay, you're not walking out of here with a five-point plan of what you're going to change. But you should never walk out of here unaffected because it's still the word of God. You may not have four things you're going to do differently, but you should be like, wow, I understand something more about God than I did previously. Or it may change something that I think, hopefully. And if not, then tell us that because we're not doing our jobs. I know for many of us, for many of us, we have to have the fight that our sister has in her prayer request. That we don't evaluate God based on our circumstances, but through his word. Because it will come back. 